0: This week on Dig Me Out, part two of a two-part interview with Watershed bassist Joe A. Strike, author of the new book Hitless Wonder,
1: A Life in Minor League Rock and Roll.
2: The song Star Vehicle, which is the lead track on the album, does that is that basically addressing your time with Epic and the management and all the stuff that went down? Because there's a lot of direct references to in the lyrics, like some of the lyrics go the attorney agrees with the management team if you're looking sharp you can sell gold let's go out and ride in my star vehicle seems like there's some venom being spat in that particular yeah song. I mean,
3: colin wrote the lyrics to that song and we don't really talk a lot about what the lyrics means i don't know exactly what it means to him but that's what it means to me and when he first played that song for me that's what i heard and it was our mm. kind of uh uh, not a, not indictment but just just kind of our comment on what the last couple of years had been like for us
2: well that's interesting that you bring that up because one of the things that i think jay and i were most interested when we had the opportunity to talk to you is is about, actually about songwriting which is not something that gets covered a whole lot in the book it's more about what happens rather than the specifics of how one particular song got written or you know what your what your process is so you say that colin wrote the lyrics for that song do you guys have input on each other's songs or is it basically like this is colin's song these are colin's lyrics i don't mess with them he doesn't mess with mine or will you guys bounce ideas and say you know what i have a i have an idea for a a verse for that song
3: yeah the lyrics are definitely the thing that i think we hold closest Like, like in a song the way it usually works not always there are exceptions but usually If I sing the song, I'm almost always the person who came up with the initial idea for the song and got the song off the ground. And then I probably played it for Colin and, you know, we arranged it together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But then usually if it's a song that I started, I will be the person who writes the lyrics. And same thing with Colin. We might offer a suggestion for a word here or there on each other's lyrics, but but that's the one place that uh, we kind of refrain from commenting. And I especially, I I can be a little invasive in the sense that I creep into a song, Colin, you should change this, you should change it, do this, do this, change this around, blah, 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 blah. And he's often very good at sort of patting me on the head and saying, we'll see, Joe, we'll see. But mm. even even I don't mess with the lyrics too much.
2: Well, that's interesting because I, I definitely feel like, and I think this is Jay would agree with me that you guys have especially at this time it felt like there were two different styles going on from song to song in terms of what you guys were doing like if you take a song like black concert t-shirt it's very much in the vein of like a classic power pop cheap trick reminds me of like you know the first track off of um that hello uh i forget what album that's on but it's like it's just you get to the chorus i think twice in the first minute of that song. I mean, it is <laughs> yeah. blazingly fast yeah. and concise, whereas Colin tends to take a more not a classic rock approach, but like you mentioned Springsteen before where he he lets it like it's a little more breathing in the in the vocal delivery and in the structure of the song. Is there ever, was there ever a concern or even now where I guess not since you've been together for 26 years, but do you guys ever discuss the fact that the songwriting styles are a little bit different and it kind of makes it for not the most consistent listen, not that it's, I don't want to say, make it sound like a criticism, but if you're expecting 10 songs that all sound like Black Concert T-Shirt when you pick up this record, you're not going to hear that, whereas right. it's I, a much more diverse record than people might expect.
3: Sure, I think, I think you might even use the word confusing when talking about Watershed at times. I know that when we were on Epic, one of the big criticisms from the record company was they have two lead singers, And so Epic really wanted there to be a frontman, an Eddie Vedder or a Zach De La Roca type that they could market. And at the time I was like, that's crazy. You can have two lead singers. Just look at, I don't know the Beatles. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I, but now I understand that I don't think the confusion is really the two lead singer thing. I think the confusion is in the two different styles of songwriting. That's Mm -hmm. the confusion. Mm
0: -hmm. And
3: I think Although Colin and I both love Cheap Trick. Interestingly, Colin is the guy who loves Springsteen, and I'm the one who got him to listen to Springsteen in the first place. Okay, The thing we have in common is Cheap Trick, really. And so I'm more of a power pop guy who happens to love Cheap Trick. He's more of a roots rock guy, a little more folky, who happens to love Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick is definitely the subset there of where, what are those things called Venn diagrams from from Algebra? The subset Mm -hmm. of the Colin and Joe Venn diagram is cheap trick for sure.
0: Mm.
3: But I do think it can be a little confusing because we expect albums to have this kind of consistent sound from track one to track ten as a rule. Now the thing is, I think we are fans of records that don't always have that kind of consistent sound all the way through. The guys Mm -hmm. in Watershed, we... We just see like the whole rock and roll canon as um, available to us stylistically. So to us, it makes sense, but we might be the only ones, given that we haven't sold that many records in our career.
2: Well, I think probably you know, the, the two lead singer thing was a bit confusing in the 90s because I can't think of a lot of bands in the 90s that had that were successful with two lead singers. Like, one that comes to mind is the Goo the Goo, Goo Dolls, except every song that was a single for them was sung by Johnny Resnick.
3: Right. The and bass player
2: a, never had a single.
3: That's an interesting case because when they started, they were more the bass player Robbie's band. Right. And then the record company basically said, this guy is pretty guy. He writes catchy songs. Let's put him out front. The other Mm -hmm. band I can think of like that is urge overkill. Mm -hmm. Same kind of thing where Nash Kato became the front man, but really they were kind of a two singer songwriter band. So record companies have a way of making their marketing job easier by picking one face to be the Mm -hmm. face of the brand. And we definitely resisted that. We got those same kind of pressures, but
2: we resisted it for better or worse super stressed <laughs> we were discussing this song it's sort of the um the musician as mu- as mooch idea which both jay and i thought was a little bit funny just because we don't think of people in columbus being able to get away with that that seems like a more new york or la thing that yeah. you could be a musician and you could just bounce from couch to couch and use up uh, whatever random girls you know generosity at the time or or friends refrigerator that's available or whatever you need for that short period of time that you're uh, mooching off of them right was this basically a not a representation of the time but was this something that you guys were dealing with where you know the label's gone you're not you don't get the per diem anymore for food you're on your own and you have to go back to columbus and back to you know regular jobs that sort of thing and was this song sort of a bit a of yeah, slice yeah, of life from that time
3: yeah absolutely i mean the mooching started while we were still on epic as soon as we signed the record deal we all moved in with our parents because we knew that there was a finite amount of money that we had to work with now the amount was huge two hundred fifty thousand dollars. that was a huge amount of money but it was finite and so we knew we needed to save money anywhere we could. So the sleeping on couches and in basements and all that in our own boyhood rooms started immediately. I could use
0: you and your credit cards to start a tab to buy a guitar. I could use you to hang out on the scene, make the girls wonder what's right with me. somebody
3: like you we spent almost all of that record money making a record that isn't very good twister we're dropped from the label and all of a sudden we're still sleeping on couches in our boyhood rooms, except the legitimacy of the label is gone. And yes, we had to crawl back to the same day jobs that we had before the record company, which for Colin meant going back to becoming a sandwich artist at Subway. Oof. And you know that's that's a brutally public kind of shaming, where you know he he just like in the Wrestler. Have you guys ever seen the Wrestler? In that, yep. in that yep. bit where Mickey Rourke, there's a scene where Mickey Rourke is the pro wrestler who's working behind the counter at the deli. And mm-hmm. he's got to put up with all the hassles of people saying that he didn't you know measure exactly a half a pound of knockwurst or whatever. But I can remember Colin being behind the counter at Subway and people walking in and being like, didn't you used to be on Epic? I thought you were on Epic. What happened, Rockstar? Make me a sandwich. Oh, and there's, oh God. And there was this one moment where some kid actually asked Colin to autograph a Subway sub for him. Oh. (laughs) And so that will, I think, put a little bit of um, existential stress in your life.
1: (laughs) Yeah. No kidding.
2: Did you guys ever think about possibly um, embezzling any of that money? Perhaps (laughs) (laughs) saying, you know, I need need Colin to to play tuba on this song. We're going to pay... Colin, as an extra musician, $50,000 out of our budget.
3: Yeah, the way we embezzled it, the little bit we could, is that there was this $50,000 that was supposed to be used exclusively for uh, touring, tour support, and you have to turn in a tour support budget ahead of time. And we tried to beef up that budget as much as we could. But still, none of that money went in our pocket. All of the $250,000 either went into the belly of the power station... Or it went into gasoline to get us out on the road. Or in the we, we did pay ourselves per diems, but it was only fifteen dollars a day for the whole time. So it's not like we were you know eating any better than as I said before, bagel and chicken soup at the deli. When it was all said and done, we all got from Epic one thousand dollars in cash and one thousand dollars to buy gear with. Other than that, we got the fifteen dollar per diem. We got gas for the van. And that's it. Now, of course, we did get two years where we didn't have to work a real job. And that that was a real gift. And I'm thankful for that even now.
2: What did you end up buying gear wise? I bought a Galeon Kruger
3: head and a hardkey cabinet that I'm still using to this day. So it all worked out. You still have the gear.
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yep. You're all set. What else did you need? Before we leave uh, "Super Stress." one of the things about this song that, that stood out to me I like a lot is the... Uh, the harmony and the chorus. And that's something I think you guys do a lot. And, um, isn't, I don't think, I don't hear it mentioned very much. It's sort of more of focus on who, d- who does the lead vocal and the song writing, but you guys actually harmonize with each other really well. Is that you doing the, doing the harmony on that song?
3: Yeah. On that case, it is usually is it it's whoever, whoever does the lead singing. The other person's the one doing the harmony.
1: Okay, Cause I first heard it. I could have swore it was a woman. <laughs>
3: And people I mean, have said we, that about me many many times
1: not, not sing, your lead vocal I sing like stuff. a middle school girl the harmony though I mean and it worked really well that way I was like oh that was really cool they got, they got a female background vocal on this song I really like that idea and then as I listened to it more I was like maybe that's Joe it's,
3: it <laughs> is it's in fact Joe way. but the thing is we started when, when we were The Wire and then for the first uh, I don't know five or six years of Watershed until actually until the late nineties, we were just a three piece. Mm-hmm. And so to make the sound as full as can be, we figured that we've got to use every instrument at our disposal. And so that meant Colin and me singing, you know, as much as we could, as often as we could. So that meant a lot of harmonies.
2: Jay pointed out something on this song too, that I think is relevant to the overall arc of the band. There's a, a thicker guitar sound on this particular song. It's double tracked. Sounds like, Mm -hmm. were you guys playing with a second guitar player at this point? And when did you guys, if not, when did you guys decide, no, we've got to add another guitar player live?
3: Yeah, we weren't there. We were just trying to make a record that sounded slightly more rocking than the Jim Steinman produced Twister. It wasn't until after the more it hurts, the more it works. um, The first time we did with Tim Padolin that we decided to add somebody new because at that point, um, one of our songs "Can't Be Myself was starting to get played on CD101 and a few other stations nationally and that was the moment where it seemed like we could maybe get another record deal the door
0: and grab the phone like a pistol against my head ask your machine
3: 10 years after getting, you know, the first record deal, it just kind of seemed had the same feeling, like the same buzz about the band seemed to be around as when we got the epic deal and we had radio airplay, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we had a manager at the time who said, guys, I'm just going to be brutally honest with you if you want to get a record deal, when you play these songs live, it has to sound a little bit closer to the record. Not exactly like the record, and I hate it when I see a band and it sounds exactly like the record. But he's like, people are going to come in with certain expectations, and you have to get closer to meeting them. Mm -hmm. And so we tapped a friend of ours named Mark Borer, who plays in a great band called Twin Cam, and we said, come along, help
2: us fill out the sound. And then on the current record, you have Joe Peppercorn,
3: yeah, who, Joe Peppercorn from the Wiles, who was the most talented musician I know.
2: He's yeah, He's a like beast. crazy talented, multi-instrumentalist, can sing. It was interesting because he was not actually the lead singer of the Wiles when they started. And then their lead singer left, I believe. And then he was the guitar player and he stepped up and started singing. And I think they actually became a better band after that. The, yeah.
3: Yeah, Joe wasn't the lead singer of the Wiles, but he was he was the principal songwriter and I would say the main energetic force of the band anyway. And so I, something, even though I think it was a little bit of a loss when they lost Zach, the original singer, something about it seemed right when Joe took over, because in some ways it was, he was kind of the creative force anyway, but I have to say what a coup by watershed to somehow convince Joe peppercorn to join the band Good for us. And that's all Colin Gowell, the other guy in watershed. That's all his, um, he let's put it this way: he's a guy who comes up with a lot of ideas. Many of them seem impossible, and uh, that's an impossible one that we actually made happen.
1: He Is he playing keyboards dream. too
3: on the record? He does.
1: Yeah.
3: yeah, there's a song called "American Muscle" on the record. That's all Joe mm-hmm. playing piano. There's some other kind We're of get Nick to that. Lowe, some Nick Low keyboardy parts, and that's mm-hmm. all Joe Peppercorn. Now, when okay. we play live, Peppercorn just plays guitar. Because we didn't want to drastically change the sound of the live band, mm-hmm. and plus it's just less to carry if you don't have to bring a giant keyboard on the road.
1: Oh no, I understand that. <laughs> I did that for a while, playing two instruments, and I, it, that got old really fast. I was like, you know right. what? We're just fine with guitar. That's
3: that's right. And again, I don't <laughs> think I don't think the band live, and, and I mean every band, I don't think any band live needs to sound exactly the way it does on the record. As as Colin once said about Aerosmith, and Colin loves Aerosmith, he said, If I go to see an Aerosmith show and it sounds exactly like the record, why bother? Like, for the hundred bucks I spent on the ticket, I could have stayed home, bought a bottle of whiskey and their entire CD catalog, and had a hell of a good time.
1: Yeah,
2: that's true. Um, I want to skip ahead a, a couple songs to a pair. First one is She Picks the Songs. This is a song that you sing, but musically it kind of sounds uh, like a Colin song. Um, especially, there's a couple of guitar licks in that sound in that song that have almost like a rockabilly feel. Mm-hmm. Was that something that Colin added to a chord structure that you had, or was Colin's, I guess, Springsteen and Springsteen draws from like '50s, you know, Buddy Holly and and that sort of thing. So was that rubbing off on you as a, as a songwriter? Were you more comfortable with um, him coming in and saying, you know, I, I'm going to play a lick here? Or was that something you had in mind when you were writing the song?
3: I would have been comfortable with Colin playing a lick no matter what. Um, I think if we're talking about the same lick, I think I wrote that one, but it'd be fine if Colin wrote it either way. But really what you have in that song and also a song called Half of Me from that record is all of the time we'd spent playing in the South especially playing with a great band from New Orleans called Dash Rip Rock. Um, being a bar band in the South was starting to rub off on us. Mm. And then from, you know, playing with Dash Rip Rock and, and being a, we, we'd always been fans of a band like the Georgia Satellites and Steve Earle and bands like mm-hmm. that. And again, as I said before, we're, we're fans of um, a lot of elements of the rock and roll canon from The Replacements to Steve Earle to, I don't know, I like ABBA, if you, can, if you can call them rock and roll. And we try to find ways to make these things fit together, because it's what we like. And so we've spent so much time playing the South, playing with these alt-country and downright country bands, and I think it just found its way into the songs. Like I might have even said, let's see if I can write a country song.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: I don't remember making that uh, choice, but sounds like something I'd do.
1: <laughs> and that's, uh, we had kind of had those two songs paired up as well. And as uh, showing that sort of country twang influence on it. But the thing that's funny about half, half of me, I, I think it um, shows the aspect of your voice where I think you sound a lot like Ace Fraley at times. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Sweet. I'll take that as a compliment.
1: <laughs> Especially in the verses, the way that you, kind of, the, the way you phrase things. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like if Ace Fraley did a, you know, like Southern rock song almost, which is kind of a cool <laughs> idea. But you mentioned, a- you know, Kiss as being an influence, I, I think a bit in the book and in, in the past and in your and things I've seen. Um, can you talk a little bit specifically what, what do you think about them as come across and in, in into your music or into the band? Because it's a band that you hear a lot of other bands say that they were influenced by, but sometimes it's very difficult to hear maybe musically the connection. Just talk about yeah, that. Yeah.
3: I mean, these days, I I can't say that I'm a fan specifically of Kiss's uh, recent tunes exactly, Mm -hmm. Um, but there's no doubt Kiss, just like, okay, here's what I want to say. Just like there's an entire generation of musicians who saw the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and said, that's it, I want to become a rock star, okay? Mm -hmm. For, For people my age in their late 30s and early 40s, I think that moment was when we saw KISS, whether it was on 321 contact or whether it was just somebody's older brother brought home a copy of Kiss Alive. KISS mm-hmm. made it reasonable for average people like us to dream of becoming rock stars. I think that's what KISS gave us. I don't think KISS gave us anything in terms of the musicality or the songwriter, songwriting, mm-hmm. other than that, you know. KISS saw themselves as um, the heavy metal Beatles. Cheap mm-hmm. Trick sees themselves as kind of a, a neo-Beatles. It all goes back to that kind of pop songwriting. So KISS, you know, they're writing pop songs just like we're writing pop songs. But I really think their the influence was in the career aspiration
1: mm-hmm.
3: more than and in the had, sound.
1: And they had more than one singer.
3: That's true. They did. <laughs> they, they probably did make it okay for us to have more than one singer in our minds.
1: So you could have threw that back in the record label's face. How about this little band called Kiss?
3: Uh-huh. Take that,
1: <laughs> Epic Records.
2: Kiss got a lot of um, leeway. They they put out a lot of records before they actually had a hit record.
1: You don't see bands break on their third record anymore.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, it, it used to be that record companies
3: would develop artists and that would mean hanging with an artist as the artist found his voice. I mean, even Springsteen, you know, it wasn't until the Born to Run album that, that Springsteen really made his mark. Rush, any band like that. We could talk about how the whole record, major label record company structure barely exists anymore. And that's one thing. But starting in, a, in the 90s, the record companies didn't really want to develop bands so much as sign a finished product and I think they saw the, the independent labels, the sub pops and mammoths of the world as the minor league developmental area. And then when a band got called up to the majors, the major labels expected that band to be ready to go, sell a million records out of the gate. And if it didn't happen, um, record companies were notoriously impatient. These days, it's, of course, it's even worse. You know, you pretty much have to already be on a TV show in order to get a major label contract anymore.
2: Artists who are on labels now, if you're going to be on Warner Brothers, or you're going to be on Sony, you have to be someone who's going to sell 10 million records, not even 10 million records, singles on you know iTunes singles. You've got to be able to be on multiple medias. They're going to put you on television. You're going to have uh, possibly tour movies like Justin Bieber and Katy Perry, those sorts of things. I mean, you have to be a, more of a product than, say, you know, X band. You know, there'd be no grunge movement for the early 90s because none of those bands were interested, or most of them were not interested in, you know, they, they wanted to get signed to major labels because the bands they admired were on major labels, but they were not right. interested in being a multimedia projects. <laughs> Maybe what whole surfers were.
3: Right. <laughs> Yeah, when I look at a band that's on a major label now, and, and I guess when I say band, I really mean artists because I can't even think of that many bands that are on major labels. I mean, to me, they have as much in common with a band like Watershed as the TV show Glee does or a giant Broadway production in the sense that it's still music, but it's such an entirely different um, milieu that they're working in. It's barely even the same thing, it seems to me. There's so much um, corporate influence and interest in what happens to that band that it's barely the same thing as, you know, as what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Nobody cares if we sell records, including us.
1: That's one way to go about it. (laughs) In a strange way, I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) (laughs) I think you have to be in a band to understand that. Right. Uh, um.
2: You had mentioned that if that's how you want it was re-recorded for this record because you thought it was going to be it had an opportunity to be a single for Twister but it never was and bringing it back for this record gave it that shot Jay and I both thought that after um, blank concert, Black Concert T-Shirt that this was probably the most catchiest was the catchiest song after that song um, Did it end up being released as a single? No, it actually never did I think we got
3: bored with it I think our strategy of re-recording the song kind of came around to bite us because we re-recorded it because it never got any attention but then in the re-recording i think we got bored of the song and so we never really tried all that hard to uh to get it attention Hmm. yeah so it, it never really saw the light of day
1: a song like that and even um, Turn It On, Turn It Up, Turn Me Loose.
3: Yeah, it's a Dwight no, I could
1: composer. hear. Is it? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny because it just made me start to think about I could hear another artist doing that because obviously another artist wrote it. Um, but have you guys pushed or considered the idea of, you know, writing for other people and would that even appeal to you? I mean, does it, do you need to deliver the song in order for it to sort of be worth your time or would you be happy just kind of writing Uh, songs for other people
3: no we'd be thrilled at that and if you're listening right now and you want a song you can have it take anyone you want
2: well that's actually a good point because i I just read the autobiography of butch walker who had been in south gang in the in the late or the early 90s and then he was in marvelous three and he sort of fell into being a professional songwriter not just for some alternative rock bands for like pink and and working with some huge major label artists and I was listening to Black Concert T-Shirt. If that's how you want it. And then later stuff like Can't Be Myself and Obvious. And I was like, there is no reason that you could not be doing that same thing. And I'm just wondering if that's something you've ever thought about in terms of being a songwriter for hire, you'd have to be approached or is that, you know, with you, having yeah, some do connections. Do yeah. How do you I mean, do that?
3: <laughs> if I knew I'd be doing it, but yeah. part of it is, I mean, there's so many people specifically you think of Nashville when you think of songwriters for hire, but there's so many people, not just in Nashville, but all over the country who are doing that as their thing. And they're putting all of their energy into this. And I, I'm not sure we have enough energy left over after being the guys in the band to then push ourselves as the songwriter, too. Um, And so that probably puts us way behind the ball compared to the people who are just being professional songwriters for hire. Obviously, if anybody approached us and said, we want that song and, you know, we'd be happy to do it. And I, and I have written songs with other people before. Um, most notably, I guess, Johnny Colt, who was the original bass player in the Black Crows. Um, and then he went on to play bass for Train. And he's currently playing bass for Skinnard, which oh. is pretty sweet. Um, he, he and I worked on a bunch of songs together down in Atlanta a couple of years ago. And every now and then, a friend of mine will call and say, let's work on some songs or, you know, people who are in other kind of smaller local bands will ask me to produce something for them or or work on a song with them. And I love doing that sort of thing. So basically what I'm trying to say is I'm exactly like Butch Walker. If you take away pink bowling for soup, every (laughs) hit song and his handsomeness.
1: (laughs) Well, that makes makes a good point. I think about you guys is that Columbus is very much part of your story. I think in terms of uh, when you read the book, I think you can see it. You, I think you, do a really good job kind of illustrating you know that it is part of your personality and even kind of the ethic of the band sort of a midwestern hard-working um you know blue collar band do you think geography has anything to do with you know opportunities in terms of that kind of stuff like i know it kind of made you who you are but do you ever think about like geez if we would have been from Los well, Angeles instead you know what opportunities would we have as songwriters or even you know, as a band that we don't have because we're, you know, pretty much centrally located in Columbus.
3: I don't really buy into that idea that, y- you know, you need to be in Los Angeles or New York in order to make headway in the music business, the ice cream business, or any other business. I really don't mm-hmm. think so. I mean, I guess maybe if you're in New York or LA, the chances of random encounter with Phil Spector in a lo- in a hotel lobby, as long as he doesn't shoot you, um, maybe you'll have some kind of luck that you wouldn't get in Columbus or Cleveland or Louisville or Cincinnati. But I think the advice that Watershed got a long time ago from this a and guy who was giving a presentation at a conference we went to, which was like, look, don't, don't go to those towns. There's too much competition in Los Angeles or New York. Don't go to Los Angeles or New York or Seattle or Minneapolis or Austin because by the time you get there – the scene's already over. There's too much competition. No one's going to notice you anyway. Just be the biggest, best band in the place where you're from, and people will find you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's especially true now, given social media and the way social media and technology makes the world virtually smaller. I don't mm-hmm. think you need – I mean, where's Bonnie Vare from? Some cabin in the woods in Wisconsin? I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't really buy into that so much.
2: I have to ask about one last song before we um, close our conversation on this album. And that is one of the bonus tracks, Something Wrong. I get the feeling that you are, or I think Colin, is Colin singing this song? That's me. Oh, that's you? I get the feeling that that this is being directed at possibly a particular person. It's a rebuttal of some sort in some ways of uh some criticism from media I guess you'd say was there a particular target or was this just more of a general um we don't listen we don't agree with the criticism sort of retort
3: yeah when we were younger we were pretty reasonably big in Columbus our hometown but it felt to us like We were never included in the conversation about Columbus music in the 90s, and that's just jealousy and insecurity on our part. But it seemed like other bands like the New Bomb Turks and Scrawl and Gaunt kind of became like the definitive acts of Columbus in the 90s, and nobody was ever talking about Watershed, and in our immaturity, I I think that got our hackles up. Something wrong. we just wanted to be included and um that's kind of a young kid saying hey look at me watershed's over here too
2: <laughs> so that's not directed to any particular writer at any particular paper
3: it's directed at all the writers at all the papers <laughs> because, okay because i mean we are a confusing band, and i totally get it and and we made no bones about the fact that we wanted to do music as a career. And that that stance doesn't necessarily fly well with music writers. And, you know, they saw through it. They're like, these guys are a bunch of careerists who just want to be famous. And that's probably a simplistic reading of what we wanted, but okay, guilty as charged. And then we're just a confusing band because I, I think that people who like the new Bomb Turks looked at us and saw us as a band kind of like hootie and the blowfish the problem is the people who liked hootie and the blowfish heard us and said oh gross these guys are punk rock like the new bomb turks mm-hmm. so we were kind of stuck in between
1: hmm. i think that's uh of uh, you know we've done what 70 episodes now or more yes that seems to be the uh, sort of wrap up each episode by saying okay why wasn't this band bigger and <laughs> sometimes it sometimes the album's just good you know we we randomly pick these records so we don't always pick ones we love uh but a lot of times it's they f- didn't quite fit into any sort of they, they they were somewhere in the middle and that's a really tough place mm-hmm. to be from a marketing standpoint it's a tough place to be and you know for 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 fans of bands it's tough to you know to find mm-hmm. a, a bigger audience you know, because you you can't partner up with somebody else because <laughs> as soon as you do that you know, like you just said, you know, you're either on one too far on the spectrum one, in one of the two other two directions. So,
3: Miss, Mr. Miyagi, be- <laughs> Mr. Miyagi had it right in the Karate Kid. He said, "You walk on the left side of the road, okay. You walk on the right side of the road, okay. But you walk in the middle, crush like a grape."
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Mr. Damn. Miyagi, philosopher.
3: Yeah, yeah. The philosophy of Mr. Miyagi.
1: What's important is that uh, you guys are still at it.
3: <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that that's what's important, but that's what's true.
1: Well, why not, right? I mean, well, I mean, like-
3: Well,
2: the, it's still, it is important. Still fun. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you know, the new album's out, and there is a single being played on CD 101 on 102.5, as it is now known. And there are people who have never heard Watershed, and they turn on CD 101 and they hear that. And now they can go back and they can discover all of this music. So I think it is you know it's relevant to be still making the music because it's allowing a whole new g- group of fans to who might hear just well the first song and then go back and discover star vehicle or the more it hurts more it works you know jump onto spotify and then they can listen to those things or whatever yeah, I mean, way that they get their music now
1: set aside cd 101 i mean imagine that they don't care about the new record i think what's cool is that uh well, you know, for all bands that are still going to make music or have made a body of music, you know, it's all getting uploaded to digital channels now, and I don't think it's going to get taken down. So, (laughs) you know, going into the future, you know, 10, 20 years from now, 50 years from now, that stuff's going to be there still, you know? So there's this whole record of of you as a person and your artwork and your, you know, your contribution, and it's there for people just to stumble upon. And maybe at some point people will sort of get over the fact that, like, This music didn't come out this year, and that's okay. (laughs) And when they discover a band through you know some some you know digital music service or what have you, all of a sudden it opens this whole catalog of you know this band that they had no idea existed, and you know maybe they end up being their favorite band. Who knows? I mean, things are way different now than they were. Oh, um, I think about twenty years ago. I
3: think about. Uh, filing through those record bins at Magnolia Thunder Pussy when I was a kid and just how hard it was to find something. Now Mm -hmm. it's so easy to find something. And that is the great thing about technology. If people want to find Watershed, they can find us. The other really cool thing about being together for 27 years is that we do have new, I want to use the word, generations of fans. And, And here's what I mean. We played Dayton last week, and there was a grandfather a father and a son all there to see watershed three generations. I was like, that is pretty awesome.
1: <laughs> That's amazing.
2: You guys are a legacy act now.
3: <laughs> yeah, I know we need to start raising our kids to take over our spots like Manuda.
2: Uh, <laughs> we'll just keep going. <laughs> wow. I'm like,
1: this is going to do someday.
2: It, when you have a situation like that, where you've got new fans, is there a specific or, or is, if you had to recommend one album, would you go with a new album or would you say, if you want to get an idea of the of what we are, this is the album you need to listen to and then start from there and then work your way out?
3: Yeah, I think I would start with the more it hurts, the more it works. Because to me, that's the one where if if you don't like that at all, if you don't see anything valid or valuable in that record, you're probably not going to like anything else. I could imagine other records, like let's say you start with Twister. I could see how you would... Not like that album, but then like some of our newer stuff. But I think if the more it hurts, the more it works. If you don't like anything there, you're probably not going to like us. So I'd start there. That's the negative. <laughs> that sounds very negative. I should frame that in a positive way. The more it hurts, the more it works is the perfect positive representation of what it is to be watershed and capsid-
2: <laughs> So that's where you should start. That's the part I'll edit in. That's, that's yeah. What I'll
3: do. <laughs> edit, yeah. Edit in the part where I look like Butch Walker and have sex with all the starlets like he does.
2: Uh, <laughs> Can you guys arrange for that? I, I, I think that I wish I, I think he, isn't he married? I think he's married.
1: Wow. I don't know.
2: Yeah, I yeah, think I he has a kid and he's married and stuff.
1: He might have a was, kid, but I don't think he's married. Is he no, married maybe. to a
2: starlet? I think he was very much in the vein of like having the girlfriend back home and not really being the rock and roll star that everybody thought he was.
1: All I know is that he's. I follow him on Twitter and he's constantly posting things that are annoyingly awesome.
2: <laughs> yeah, that guy. Hey, look at me
1: it. in my, my the awesome title studio. Of his,
3: the title of his book should be My Annoyingly Awesome Life.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm going to go outside and ride around my vintage motorcycle with my buddies. Right. We're going to go. uh We're just going to stop in the recording studio and cut some tracks.
2: All right. Well, we are uh, we're we're approaching the um the hour 45 minute mark so we should probably try to put a bow on this one so that uh joe can get Two ready parter. for the next water show yeah this is probably gonna be a two-parter i'm gonna <laughs> i'm getting the wrap-up sign from my wife she's uh she's given the uh the rolling of the hands <laughs> wrap it up she's
1: she's a show producer
2: well she allowed me to do this one in the house
1: um so nice
2: so I didn't have to go in the garage because it's 95 degrees here and I would have suffocated by now. Yeah, <laughs> she says that was her idea. Um, <laughs> it was actually my idea. I'm not going to blame her. Um, yeah. So she's, she's very cheerful. Don't please, please give me. A <laughs> <open>. <laughs> yeah. Uh No. So, yeah, we should wrap this up. It's going to be a two-parter. It's going to have um, either a two-parter or a bonus material. I'm not sure how I'll split this one up. But it'll be up uh, uh, next week, which will be the 26th of June. And I want to let everybody know, before we wrap this up, you can head over to a couple of websites, watershedcentral.com. And then you can also go to your website, which is Joe, I'm going to say it right this time, E-Strike?
3: A-Strike. A-Strike!
2: I got it closer. I got it closer. But you
3: you got to spell it or else nobody's going to find it because of the peskiness of A being the pronunciation, but there being no actual A in the name you should
2: change your name to a dash strike
3: oh because i think I'm that would be pretty badass I'm way ahead of you my friend on my <laughs> the first three or four watershed releases it was exactly that just like bunny carlos it was joe a period strike
2: <laughs> wow. oh, seriously that, that's badass. Yeah. that is pretty badass Wait a minute. so I'm that's, pulling out
1: the the liner notes for uh, yeah three chords here let me see
3: that actually, when we signed to Epic, that's when I made the call of going to my real oh, okay. name. Oh, so you'd, you'd have to go to like that Willie Phoenix cassette and the earlier wire stuff uh, for it to be, yeah,
2: Great no, Strike. Believe it or not, we yeah, yeah. don't have that stuff. Um, I thought you had a crack research staff. Yeah, the crack research staff got strung out on crack, so <laughs> they were not able to uh, to find that stuff because they bartered it all, all their cash. They, Sniffing Michael pretty, Jackson
3: um, statues again. Yeah.
2: So it's www.joe.com. And this correct spelling is O-E-S-T-R-E-I-C-H.com. And then you can also go to Colin's website, which is Colin Gowell. Is that, did I get that one right? That's right. That's colingawe com. Uh. Colin likes to pontificate about Ohio State football, and he also does some recording on his own. What's his band called? The Lonely Bones, I believe.
3: Yep, Something Lonely like Bones.
2: Yes. And uh, the, uh, I see that his website is now perfectly uh, matching the Watershow website. There's some symmetry going on with the design of the websites. But yours we is call not. That,
3: we call that marketing synergy in the biz. It's called, it's called maintaining the brand.
1: Yeah, brand Excellent. consistency.
3: That's how we do it.
2: You're using the more traditional the, uh, WordPress site, I see.
3: <laughs> yeah, mine is called Not Maintaining the Brand, but Stealing Whatever's Convenient from WordPress.
1: <laughs> is the uh, nice. book available on Amazon?
3: It is. book Hitless Wonder is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, pretty much everywhere. Actual bookstores, to the extent such things exist anymore. And, uh, yeah, yeah amazon.com if uh, if you can't find it out in the real world
2: and you can go to watershed Cent- watershed central and you can buy the album digitally through their website uh i think it's, it's it utilizing yeah it's on itunes and then you can also spotify. check it out on spotify it's a it's a good album we, we did not i, I want to hit this just before we leave american muscle you mentioned that song earlier <laughs> what's up with that Because it doesn't sound like any other watershed song ever. It sounds – to me, it sounds like a Warren Zevon meets um, some sort of 70s AOR. I mean, it is way different than everything else. Can you just Uh, give us a brief – I like the
3: Warren Zevon comparison or Ray Davies comparison in the sense that there's a speaker singing the lyrics to that song that's pretty clearly not me, not my politics – and in my mind, that speaker is a banker.
0: Of Zurich City on the Bonhoeff Strasse, The girls look at me get in, baby When I whip my fat wad out I whisper sweet nothings About mergers and acquisitions And back at your flat Watch me leverage my positions, baby Put the liquidity in your ass now
3: You know, basically, we looked around at the world the last couple of years and we're like, man, why are we in a band? It's the bankers who are having all the fun. They're getting all the cocaine and hookers and getting over on everybody else. So I really, really wanted to write a song from the point of view of a banker. And so this is the world's first pro banking song. We wrote this song for the one percent. They've got all the money. The 99 percent people, you don't have to listen. It's not for you. It's for the the top of the top.
1: You guys are being rebellious.
3: It's the only song I can think of in rock and roll history that actually name checks the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Name guys, me another song that brings that up, huh? Right. Are you consider pitching
1: this to Mitt Romney?
3: It would be perfect for Mitt Romney. I'll have Maybe to get my people on song? that.
1: You know they're going to pick some other song, and whoever they pick is going to sue them. So why not pick a song that you know they won't get sued for? I hope they pick it. They can have it. Anybody out there knows Mitt Romney and they, you know, you're looking for a campaign song. We have a suggestion.
3: It sounds like a kind of cocky Mitt Romney type, you know, <laughs> jingoistic American song. I, I got to see what I can do about that. I don't know many Republicans, but I'm going to start asking around. <laughs>
2: I, I do need to mention that um, your Twitter feed, which is at Hitless Wonder, um, people should subscribe to that because you do advice from a twenty-year rock veteran tips, and I have enjoyed those as as a rock veteran. And uh, if you were in the minor leagues, I guess Jay and I would be in like single A ball or like the the rookie leagues be below that. And so I, <laughs> I, I I get enjoyment of seeing the stuff that we're both we recognize as being truths. But then also seeing the right. stuff that was like a, slightly ahead of us
1: um, <laughs> it's that we a, never it's got a, to. How, how much of it is really similar? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is kind of depressing, considering like you guys ac- you've accomplished so much more than so many other bands, and you know by far way more than we ever accomplished. Still, like all the stories are. It's kind of like Spinal Tap. It's just universal. Like,
3: well, I'm that's reading, why. Like, oh. That's why I really hope that there would be an an audience for this book and. I'll admit that for a few months, I couldn't get this book sold. And it was because I always heard, if your band didn't really sell any records, why do you think you can sell any books? And I said, well, first of all, that's ridiculous because books don't just have to be about the people who won. I mean, Rocky lost, Rocky won, and it's still a great movie. You can write songs about, or write books about the underdog. But the Mm. other thing is that so many people have been in bands and they've had this experience and they can relate to this. And even if you haven't been in a band, you probably know somebody who's been in a band. Maybe you dated somebody who's been in a band. I'm like, there is an audience for this book. Sure. And luckily it seems like that's turning out to be true.
1: Yeah. Tim and I were talking the other night about the, what was the books that you were mentioning that you had had read that were sort of in the same. Well, I read the book. Different.
2: Yeah. I'd read um, Jacob Schlichter, who was in the band Semisonic. He was the drummer. He wrote a book. It was like at the early two thousands about their experiences, and they obviously were at a little di- different level because they had a huge hit single with Closing Time, right. and then they basically went through the whole put out tried to put out the next record, and the label gave them, you know, a bunch of crap, and it you know eventually led to the downfall of the band. Dan Wilson went on to become a songwriter in his own right, but the rest of the band went off and did their own thing, and pretty quickly after that. And then I also read uh, Jennifer Trinan. I don't know if anybody remembers her but she had an album called cockamamie and there was a single called better than nothing which was one of those like you know two weeks in the buzz bin on mtv and it got college radio play she wrote a book called everything i'm cracked up to be came out like 2004 2005 something around around there and it's a it's a very similar story where she put out a record independently major label found it decided to re-release it basically as is Got a one-hit single out of it. She made the follow-up record. They said we don't hear anything. Didn't put any promotion into it and dropped her.
3: And I read and enjoyed both those books. I think both of those books are just absolutely fantastic. Now, on the one hand, the thing that's different about our story is there's a world of difference between one hit and zero hits. You know? Yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I mean, that's like the difference between getting to the moon and not getting to the moon. Right. But and then the other thing, (laughs) the other thing is those books. They're great, don't get me wrong, but there's not much of a backstory in their stories. It kind of just starts as they're getting close to getting the record deal. And then in both cases, as soon as they get dropped, they stop. I mean, I can remember this moment specifically in the Jen Trinan book where she says, why would I want to spend the rest of my life playing these dingy clubs? And I was sitting there reading the book thinking, why wouldn't you? And then I said, (laughs) my next question was, wait a second why do I what does that yeah. say about me what's wrong with me that I do want to because she seems like the sane one here and then that ended up kind of being the question yeah. I was trying to answer in, with my book why do I want to spend the rest of my life playing these dingy clubs
1: well I have to say a couple of friends of mine of we were commenting on Facebook that we all started the book and I said yeah I've gotten to page 40 and I'm pretty much convinced we're all mentally ill <laughs> like right. there's no like there's no logical way to explain why you would put yourself through this. Like I just something that you want to do. And it's very difficult to explain like why you would want to go through all this hassle to sometimes play for one person or three people or nobody. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but you know, keep doing it. But uh, yeah, I was just, it's, it's sort of like, you know, just 40 pages in, I was like, Oh my God, this is, and I haven't done it in a while. So it was just like bringing back all of those memories and thinking like, just that moment of like what the hell is wrong with the, what's right. wrong with the musicians?
3: I don't have the answer. I wrote the book <laughs> and I still don't have the answer. Yeah.
2: yeah. All right, gentlemen, I think we need to wrap things up. I think we, uh, I think we've just about skirted the two hour mark, which is um, going to put us into Alan Johannes territory. And that one was pretty ridiculous. So, cause I think we spent over three hours with him. I think by the end of it, we had, planned a trip to California to visit him.
1: So
3: <laughs> you guys can come pull- down to Myrtle beach and visit me anytime. Excellent. Pulled, that's what we
1: were hoping he for. Out his, uh, he pulled out a cigar box guitar and actually did a jingle for us. So
2: that's true. <laughs> You're going to have to it up. up. Do you
1: have any homemade instruments laying around?
3: <laughs> the jokes write themselves at that point. Yeah.
2: I'll just, I'll just let that one go.
1: There you go.
2: All right, Joe, thank you so much for spending your Tuesday evening with us. Um, I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you. And I want to encourage everybody to go out and get the book, Hitless Wonder, and the album, the new album from Watershed Brick and Mortar. Those are both available through WatershedCentral.com and the various websites that we mentioned. Jay, thanks again for joining me on an extra long podcast. I'm sure you want to go and not read anymore for quite some time whatever
1: it is that those dirty non-readers do
2: yeah uh, i promise no more, no more authors no more authors
1: no i enjoyed the book it was it was a very easy read so
2: <laughs> that was
3: my goal let's make it easy
1: thank you appreciate it i think the last book i probably read was like the david lee roth book or something so this was just as good at was least my
2: book easier than his
1: crazy from the it heat actually was. it actually was his book was awful this is just rambling, and your, your book is actually very well written. And Wait a minute, uh, David Lee Roth wasn't
2: is. concise and uh well thought know, out strange, in his right? in his literary prose.
1: I know, really, really strange. Did
3: Did you at least get a proper spelling on this word in his book? Zabadi baba bop, did he bop? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all
2: right, guys, that's it. Thanks everybody for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
0: Want to leave feedback? Join the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed. While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation and merchandise pages. And thanks for listening.